This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is 420, April 20th, 2023. I don't think either of us really uh, do much pot smoking, so it's kind of passing us by. Regardless, I'm Scott DeLunderboom. I'm Ian Bushfield. I have in the past. I haven't since kids. It's not entirely true, but not much. Rare and yeah. infrequently, I think, would probably describe yeah. both of us on that. Yeah. I'm also not feeling great today, so we'll see if this goes a little bit quicker, but we will be talking about, like, I made the mistake, I thought it would be a great idea to take my uh, one-year-old to Science World this morning, and it was a blast, but, like, he was very tired on the way there because he likes to wake up at 5.30, so that's also on my mind, and so I had a cranky child on the SkyTrain, and then he napped the way home, but then didn't go back to sleep very well at home and so he didn't have his like usual two-hour nap so i'm just like running on like fumes this evening is the point but let's talk about cbc quitting twitter as well as like a roundup of some smaller stories that happened here in bc has a slow week mostly feels like yeah Lately. patreon.com slash politicoast get it in there Let's start in BC. We have two new bills in the legislature. They're back in session this week. Uh, the first bill is very boring. Uh, it approves the boundary changes that we discussed last week. Uh, the government always holds the option, the legislature, to take the Boundary Commission's recommendations or not. And in this case, they are 100% taking them. I think they usually do. It's nice because it's a nonpartisan process. Um, yeah, usually when there's mucking around to be done, it's in the terms of reference rather than at the end, I believe. Yeah, and I think some other We're provinces like to change the riding names. You can do that. In Alberta in particular, they, they love to name them after previous premiers. So you have like Calgary Klein is a riding. Which is weird and like goes against the uh, the Westminster tradition of naming the ridings after places. Alberta is its own place, but... Uh, I think the only thing that's notable from the nerdy side in this actual bill is Schedule 2 is the reference to the actual maps, uh, and it just references the zip file that was included in the Boundary Commission's report. So uh, we learned today that government emails are limited to 25 megabyte attachments because government operates in the 90s era internet. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've actually come across a zip file for pretty much anything. Right. Yeah, just uh, get a file transfer site like everyone else in the uh, 2020s has. The other bill that was introduced is also a relatively short bill, and it only does one thing, which is to allow a housing project to go through in Vancouver that is currently uh, before the courts. It basically just says, uh, no, actually, what Vancouver did to approve a supportive housing project is fine. We don't care about the court. It It nullifies a lawsuit against it which is yeah. a bold move in a good yeah, way. Like basically, the text of the bill kind of says, this is deemed as a matter of law to have been a valid bylaw by the city. Like Super simple, basically just cutting out the grounds on which the uh, 
people opposing this are suing. It's most noteworthy because governments provincially have been reticent to uh, tread on municipal jurisdictions in the past, or at least here in BC. Uh, we don't have like a history of the you know ministerial zoning orders the way Ontario does or anything. Uh, but yeah, it's a sign that the uh, government is actually serious about uh, pushing forward uh, housing measures in cities. So that's uh, an interesting one to watch. There's other lawsuits trying to stop projects going around the uh, area here. Most notably, I think a, a similar group is challenging the uh, service agreement between the city of Vancouver and uh, the Sanat development being uh, put forward or being worked on right now, actually, by uh, MST. And that one didn't get uh, put in here. I gather that it's currently has less of a holdup going on. But uh, yeah, there's potentially other things that uh, the government could be uh, using similar tools on in the future. So something to keep an eye out for sure. Yeah. And this project in Kitsilano, a supportive housing project just off Arbutus Street, uh, seemed like a fairly, I don't want to say uncontroversial, but like net positive. Oh, it, was situ- it was very controversial, long, right? Um, that was a very long drawn out uh, public hearing on that yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, and we went- yeah, I should probably mention, like I yeah spoke to that one in favor of this and whatnot, but like, yeah, it was a multi-day thing and uh yeah hardly uncontroversial but uh it's good that it finally passed it'd be nice if there were yeah they didn't have to bother with this legislative thing to stop the lawsuit or at least not have it hold things up while it gets resolved yeah it does point to like is what it is underlying structural issues with permitting and zoning and the processes there and you know, I've gone through with Matthew some of these on Canby Report, and we've come across some of them here on the provincial side on B- on Politicos. But at very least, like this is the one where they can target like this is a BC housing project that the province is putting money in and is very invested in going forward versus like some of the private developments they're probably a little less concerned with, although they still want housing. So how they move forward on different projects in the future, and particularly with that new. Uh, threat of the new legislation in the fall coming. Uh, it's definitely a different yeah. government in terms of housing. And we're a lot better than some places are. Like California is the worst for this sort of thing. Their state level environmental law basically allows anyone to sue for anything. Uh, so, like, just as a matter of course, like routine infill stuff gets held up there uh, in a way that you don't see here. So, we could be a lot worse, but uh, yeah, it looks like the government is taking a closer eye on some of that stuff. Right now, this is a one-off intervention, but I don't know. Be curious to see if this is a precursor to some different reforms or like broader reforms in the future on that. I love that in 40 years, this like couple lines about one specific part of Vancouver is still going to be part of the Vancouver Charter, as I understand the way this is working. Or maybe I don't actually understand how the bill works, but... Uh, moving on, someone who's taking a closer look at BC is the SNP Global Financial Firm. It's This is one of at least four major organizations that does credit ratings of governments. Uh, Fitch had previously released their credit rating of BC, keeping us at AA+. Plus. SNP Global has decided to move us down from AA+, plus to 
double A with a negative outlook as opposed to stable. Yeah, so all of these uh, rating agencies regularly review uh, various bond issuers' creditworthiness. Uh, not a huge surprise. And like, as the uh, reporting notes that uh, we still have one of the best credit rating among provinces, uh, but yeah, so same deficits and whatnot are making it uh, the case that uh, we are getting a slight downgrade. Uh, I mostly wanted to play this because it's interesting about kind of the political aspects of deficit spending budgets and whatnot. And, you know, over the past probably what seven years or so, the politics has really kind of shifted on where it was. And that happened in a period of basically zero interest rates. And as interest rates have climbed, the actual costs associated with credit downgrades potentially get a lot bigger. So it's, I think this small change is unlikely to have a huge effect short term, but it's the sort of thing that's more significant now than it would have been, say, four years ago. Yeah, and there's a lot of, I'm going to call it irrationality baked into these kind of ratings, because as it notes in the Globe and Mail piece, there's um, a tendency for these to cascade. And once one changes their ratings, the others respond in kind. Like they do have metrics and a theoretically rational basis for calculating this. But it's it's such a weird part of our system, these like into these private firms maintaining so much power over how governments behave and act in many ways. I don't have deeper thoughts about it. It just is like <laughs> Yeah, because, well, I mean, yeah. if you yeah, if you have money that you're uh, looking to uh, put into bonds, like you want to know what the uh, likelihood that you'll get paid back on any of them is, and yeah, you have a an intermediary that's stepping in and trying to provide that service in case of S and P and Fitch and the other rating agencies. So, I mean, it made sense from a system structure point of view in one respect, but yeah, it does have some interesting side impacts too. Uh, and finally, in BC, let's go to the courts and uh, the charges that were laid against Ferry Creek protesters are starting to collapse. As it turns out, cops were lazy and didn't read the full injunction they were supposed to when arresting people for breaching that injunction. The background to this case is uh, we've talked about the Ferry Creek protests a number of times. This was the old growth uh, protests on Vancouver Island. Uh, a number, a large number of people were arrested there. I think CBC reported like 2,000 people in the end over the period of the various protests. Uh, there were injunctions sought by Teal Jones, the logging company, and those were granted by the courts. So the RCMP moved in and arrested people. I guess they used a short-form script to inform people of the injunction when the law requires them to read the whole injunction. This was tested in uh, one specific case where uh, Ryan Henderson was actually acquitted on this ground, and the that ruling has ripple effects. Uh, the Crown wants to appeal that ruling to the Supreme Court of Canada, but that's going to take a lot of time. And everyone else who's facing these charges has the right to a speedy trial. And so the Crown's motion to adjourn all of those cases until the Supreme Court of Canada appeal 
of the Henderson acquittal, if you're keeping up, uh, would take too long. So now we're, and this motion to adjourn was denied. And so now all of these people, there's about 150 still facing charges. A lot got dropped quickly. Um, but 150 more people may just be let off from their breach of injunction because they weren't read the full text. Such a silly thing to have the whole thing fall apart on. I'm actually surprised this many charges were moving forward. Um, in a lot of these protest cases, people just like the charges get dropped because it's not really in the public interest to go through a full trial on every single protester because by arresting them and like removing them from the scene, you've done most of the good you need to do. And it's not pleasant being arrested, I've heard. And so like that, there is still a disincentive effect to the injunction and the arrest. Um, but this is a big win for the people who've been defending and working with. And I should say the lawyer defending the protesters uh, is Karen Mursky, president of the BCCLA and someone I know personally as a friend. So bit of bias here on my side, but um, still just like a fascinating situation. Yeah, particularly because like, you think with all the effort they, the RCMP went into to police this thing, they would have at least bothered to make sure they read the full thing out. I think they were operating under an assumption that what they were doing was legal, and it's this more recent interpretation that kind of threw a wrench into the whole thing. Like, if I want to give the cops the benefit of the doubt here, it's that they didn't, like, intentionally get lazy, but they did shoot themselves in the foot by being lazy. So much more we could go into on policing, I'm sure at some point on this or the Cambio report, I'll have to get into the Miles Gray inquest that's happening right now, probably on Cambio report, because that whole case is going to go a lot into the culture of the Vancouver Police Department, but um, lots happening. Anyway, good news, I guess, for the 150 people who will likely have their charges dropped. It sounds like it's not been done yet, but everyone's pretty much expecting Crown to withdraw charges because it's really hard for those to proceed at this point. <laughs> Moving into, I don't know, our main segment, the big story of the week, uh, besides the strike. Another slow news week. This should not have been the big story of the week. I mean, the strike is the big story in the week, but I don't think either of us have a lot to say on that, so we'll mention it a bit more in quick takes. But um, CBC, Twitter, Pierre Polyev, Elon Musk, where do you want to start? Ugh. I mean, this whole thing is just dumb. Yeah, so like this whole thing's been going on. What's, we almost talked about this last week, but I think we skipped the uh, discussion of the early stages where uh, Pierre Polyev had uh, riding on the coattails of a similar kerfuffle down in the States with NPR, asked uh, Twitter to throw on the label to CBC. Yeah, and this follows, and that call follows Polyev and the Conservatives' renewed push to defund the CBC, right? And it's always been kind of a conservative position, but like under Harper, it wasn't like hard, we're going to just abolish the CBC. It was like, we don't like it, but we understand there's value to it and people like it. And so we're just kind of like tiptoe around and maybe not increase funding as much as others want. Um, 
but it's really churned to a fever pitch, especially with Pierre Polyev of just like, it's time to abolish CBC English. Uh, they have clarified that they are going to keep CBC Quebec and you mean Radio Canada? Radio Canada because it serves a, a market that the private uh, market doesn't do well enough. So Radio Canada will stay. It's unclear to me if he will stick behind like CBC radio in remote and rural communities where there actually isn't very much of a private market for media. Uh, but it sounds like no, that he just wants to kill a lot of it. Uh, and he's, you know, they got the usual political tools of like petitions and vociferous tweets and whatnot. And, you know, he puts yeah. out his... I mean, it's spread me to the base. Yeah. what a lot of this is. Yeah. And so he puts out at the end of last week, uh, this letter to Elon Musk saying, hey, your policy says if a uh, media organization is funded by the government, it should be labeled as government funded. And CBC is funded by the government. There's no lie in this label. Yeah, like most of the funding that CBC receives comes from the government as opposed to their own revenues uh, from their various activities. And CBC com noted this when they got the label uh, saying... Well, it's actually only 70 or it's less than 70% funded to which uh, Elon Musk, the uh, most annoying man in the world now, uh, changed the label to say 69% government funded because he's so fucking funny. That's the sense of humor of a 12 year old on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like like you mentioned, the, the label itself is pretty straightforward, accurate. Uh, I think some of the people defending cbc on this one or taking umbrage at the label are kind of protesting a little too much on it because yeah straightforwardly yeah the cbc gets a lot of its funding from the government and you know face value what the text says it's an accurate label i think the one criticism is within the description and the policy twitter has is it's like and may have and the government may have editorial influence, which they don't in the case of CBC. So and it's, it's conflating I, things. Yeah, to, I, part of it depends on how you interpret May as in, mm -hmm. uh, like, does the government have the ability to periodically intervene? Or is this the case of, um, well, it's mostly about the government funding, but it could also have this other secondary thing, but that's not the uh, criteria on which we're mostly evaluating. Um, but regardless, like the CBC isn't 100% separate. The mandate's written into the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Act. Uh, and when it, CBC's license renewal came up, uh, the CRTC added a few conditions around what type of content that they needed to be producing. And, you know, the CBC is, or CRTC isn't the uh, PMO, but it's still a branch of government. Um, I mean, the directing the, the issue at some here, level right? of editorial control. The, the issue that. here is like, it ends up conflating in many ways, like RT and, you know, yeah, well, there's also propaganda pieces of the Chinese Communist Party with like, BBC and NPR, and they're like, they're different fundamentally Although in structure and operation. It's been a while since I've been on Twitter, but don't they have a state-affiliated media for that sort of thing? That's more like a when the media is an arm of a government? Uh, I, th I don't even know anymore. 
Oh yes, they yeah they do have a state affiliated media uh, media label. Although RT underscore com for RT dot com uh, is just media and news company, so it's all a mess. Twitter it's, is stupid. Yeah, tw- Twitter was even pre must. It was never great about like consistently doing it, things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean the t- putting aside the the dumb sixty nine percent, you know humor of a preteen on that um otherwise like the labels itself i think is fine it's every it's the whole brouhaha around it that's the really annoying part yeah following the label cbc announced that they are um stopping posting essentially they're not going to post from official channels i believe their journalists are still on and active on twitter based on personal decisions uh so they can still do the kind of journalism that requires Twitter, like following what politicians say or getting in their DMs and getting secrets or whatever they need to get that way. Asking questions, that kind of stuff is still happening. But you won't get your CBC News updates from at CBC News. You'll get them from people sharing CBC articles on Twitter, which they still can do. Yeah. It's- Un- until that is until Musk probably shadow bans CBC links. If he hasn't already. And I would expect most of the traffic they were getting was not stuff from the main account. It's probably the shares and whatnot. So it, yeah, it's yeah. like a political decision by CBC to try to like protest Polyev's interventions. Which is like not the greatest move strategically if your whole point you're trying to make is that you're not a political actor in this and you're just an independent media outfit. Yeah, yeah. They they played their hand badly too, and played into this with deciding to to fight rather than basically ignore Musk. Well, and yeah, and Polyev is celebrating this. He's still calling CBC Trudeau propaganda, which like we have links in here in our show notes of stories today that are quite critical of Trudeau. We have others from CBC. We have links to Globe and Mail and other places like. Like they're not a the P- national, yeah, they're, yeah. They're not a PMO mouthpiece. There, I think there is some valid criticism that they're not as hard on the liberal government as they say were on the Harper government, or uh, the fact that like basically none of the scandals that have played the Trudeau government have been broken by the CBC. It's always Globe and Mail or Global or something. So there's. I think some reasonable questions around that. Like, I don't think it's an intentional thing that the CBC is going out of its way to do that. More just kind of like... Yeah, I take... Yeah, it's more just kind of like, yeah, the people who mostly work there are probably, by and large, similar worldviews. And that kind of unconsciously may shade the occasional decision, but it's you know not an active planning thing that goes on. I, I think I share the view that Nora Loretto and Jesse Brown kind of worked through on shortcuts today, Candleland shortcuts, which is that CBC has just been poorly run for so long and it's just like filled with cowards. Like even to stop posting is a coward's option. Like it's the least risky. You can just like turtle into your shell and not have to deal with like owning that you get government money and you can call it public funding if you want or whatever, but that that is just part of your ethos, but like you said, they aren't dropping big stories because 
they're not taking the risks that are, other journalists are. And they're getting too small, and they're not serving the communities, so people are getting frustrated. Yeah, I'd like, yeah. And their job should be serving communities, because they're the ones who can be everywhere. And that's, I think, part of where some of the, uh, the sort of dislike of CBC comes from, is like, a lot of them just don't see themselves reflected in kind of its coverage, what talks about it's, you know, great if you're, you know, living in the annex in Toronto, you, you probably see quite a bit of your life, your worldviews reflected in that. It's not something that uh, comes across in other parts of the country. And uh, yeah, people with different uh, views on that don't necessarily see themselves reflected in how CBC runs a lot of its stuff. So yeah, that shades into it too. Well, and the worst part is none of the major media is doing that. Like Post Media, Globe and Mail, they've all pulled back Toronto Star from small town journalism. Like Vancouver Sun just churned its office to all remote. Like its days as a paper are numbered and you can smell it on the wall. Like Star Metro did that big push to try to have papers in every uh, municipality by buying and that merger. And then that clearly failed as those are all pretty much gone. And we just have like digital editions, but they all feel written from Toronto or from urban cores. And so if you're not in one of those urban cores, you have like Even your the- black press here and it's a paper that barely tells you what's going on. Even in the urban cores, like there was a noticeable drop off just in like how big the media was in the like mm-hmm. 2018 municipal campaign versus the 2022 like, on the ground you could feel that they were just less of a presence and factored into yeah. less of it and you know we're, this is the largest uh urban center in uh western canada like this side of toronto and even that's like noticeably declined in just a few years time and a lot of that's just, yeah, the terrible economics of media these days. But um, yeah, CBC like could be filling that role and it's not. And yeah, they've done like weird four ways in, for, forays into stuff like uh, doing more opinion journalism as if, you know, all the papers didn't have like probably way too much opinion versus actual like on the ground news reporting already. And they did stuff like that rather than, say, build out local bureaus across the country and focus more on kind of like the day-to-day reporting stuff. My God, I swear the CBC ombudsman has probably gotten more complaints about their like stupid op-ed head than like any other part of that. I'm just guessing, but like they've run some, they'll run some like super reactionary stuff just to prove they're not conservative and then they'll probably get screamed at for that and then they'll run like the opposite of it and get yelled like just stop just do journalism just tell us what's happening in this country in these cities it shouldn't be that hard yeah so like and there's i think a very strong case for a mandate review and yeah maybe that means changing the funding formula or like refocusing what CBC does. And I think there's definitely a case for that. That's not what anyone's been talking about though. You either have people insisting that CBC is fine just the way it is. And anyone questioning that some kind of reactionary. And then you have Pierre Polyev going on talking about how it's propaganda, which is 
wrong on so many levels. Well, and then like, we just the stuff the oh yeah, do we need to go into why it's wrong? I feel like it's. I mean, uh, it feels like self-explanatory, but <laughs> like we already did discuss the limits and like the bias, if there is any. Um, like the other half of this story, and this is getting into the broader question around media. It's like this government has tried to do a bunch of things to help the press, but they've been very weird, like schemes. They're always schemes, they're gimmicks. Um, a lot of money has gone to post media and other journalism outlets through uh, either direct grants or uh, qualified, like char- a quasi charitable status is a new thing. Uh, wages are also being paid so um, journalist expenses are being covered by government costs none of that's getting labeled as government funding on Twitter Uh, I don't think like 70% of post media's budget comes from the government but it's not zero Mm -hmm. and that's not to impugn their journalism either but it's kind of a highlight that this government has tried to do some things but it doesn't I don't know. They've failed to promote innovation. Yeah, and in fact, they, they've like entrenched yeah the status quo. Yeah, the efforts they have done have generally been often to do stuff that kind of like yeah favors the incumbent players as opposed to the new and more innovative media uh, efforts in this country. Even the controversial stuff that's happening right now around oh, I forget which bill is just going through like C eighteen I want to say, but that's probably wrong. Uh, would force uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Google into sharing link or like making revenue deals with media companies in a complicated scheme that feels again, very favored to large players. Um, But then it's also getting so complicated that, you know, we had that Google news blockout day where they tested what if we just don't link to news sites in Canada? They're playing a bad game. Yeah, like and even don't the, seem to know what they're doing. Even the logic of that one seems a little suspect on that. Um, as if like the main value is going from the news outlets to the search engines that are linking them as opposed to the other way around. Like people post their like media organizations post their stuff to Facebook, Twitter, uh you don't really post to Google, but you know they put they actively put their stuff out there on all of these platforms. Free, you know, going through the effort, they're paying someone to actually go through and make all these posts. Like, there's clearly a view within the organizations themselves, and one that I think is largely correct, that there is value to trying to drive traffic by putting it out through these channels, and yet the logic of the various of this bill would seem to imply the opposite and that just doesn't strike me as correct well and there's an added complication too where if we're going to say that government funding taints journalism and the ability to hold government to account how does forcing big tech to fund journalism not like taint journalism from holding big tech to account like there's no simple solution here but this is not a better model in many ways and in many ways it's just 
dumb and bad. The point is, make CBC better. Please, someone, don't use Twitter. Those are the two takeaways I have. Yeah, being off Twitter was definitely a good decision on my part. And yeah, everyone pays way too much attention to what happens on Twitter. Sorry, the people on Twitter who think about Twitter pay way more attention to that thing than they ever should. Because Twitter is not real life. And like at the end of the day, it's not really going to matter all that much whether or not uh, the CBC has a government-funded media tag hanging underneath it. Yeah, I... It was a slow news week. Like, uh, we probably would have talked about something else if it there had been another big story this week. Let's Let's just go to our quick takes, and let's start with the 155,000 people or more, or at least more than 100,000, who are on strike as of Tuesday. This is the uh, Public Service Alliance of Canada, the union that represents uh, public servants across basically everything, um, from people who work at Service Canada, collecting your taxes, to some prison guards, uh, admin at the RCMP, uh, people in fisheries, there are some of those people are still at work because they have been deemed essential services. So the tax collector, or I don't actually know about the tax collectors, but people processing like employment insurance and pensions, I believe are on essential services because I think we all agree that a strike is, you know, a legal right, but it might go too far if it's cutting off like people on income supports money. I would hope. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there absolutely are essential services on that but yeah this is like this is one of the largest strikes in i don't even know how long like this is a large number of employees uh off the job for an indeterminate amount of time as the you know federal treasury has come forward with a pay bump of roughly i believe it's like nine percent over three years and the union's asking for Three and a half, thirteen and a half percent over three years, that which would work out to four and a half percent annually. Basically, the peace act demand is to roughly keep up with inflation. Versus, Treasury Board says they should take a pay cut over time. Effectively, um, it's unclear how easy they're going to be to reach a deal. Uh, the NDP, for its part, federally has said they're not going to support back to work legislation, but I'm sure the Liberals could get the votes they need from the Conservatives on this one if they want to push something through. But it's like, this is a real test for the federal government in many ways. They haven't had to deal with labor issues in a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, this government had generally quite a bit of labor peace. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out on all of it. Gen- I don't have a good sense of how close they are to uh, coming to an agreement how long this is going to last. Um, it's probably not going to be good for the Liberals if it uh, drains out too much longer. Because like, the immediate thing that comes to mind when I think of the public service um, going on strike is harkening back to the passport troubles of a few months back and whether or not that is going to uh, re-arise as a major issue. And, you know, 
when the opposition's kind of through line in what they're saying is that Canada is broken, not having the government able to deliver a lot of services is only going to reinforce that notion. Oh, yeah. I would say in most places or most instances, getting your passport will not be considered an essential service. Uh, notably as well, PSAC timed this pretty darn well as the tax deadline is coming up in about 10 days. So it's now uh, going to be quite challenging with much of the CRA being, quote, delayed or unavailable. Yeah, I don't think my tax returns come back yet. I mean, it's uh, I'm not exactly uh, waiting anxiously for the 750 or something that my uh, return worked out to this year, but um, it's going to be a bit of a thing that's going to annoy quite a few people. And yeah, a lot of people are probably rushing to, uh, you know, get their taxes done in the final, was it 10 days or 12 days or so till those have to be in and uh, not having the CRA able to be raised on the phone or anything. is probably going to uh, annoy a lot of people. Yeah, the not automated online really... system will still work. So, yeah, you can still submit your taxes. And I think you will still have to submit your taxes. Yeah, I believe that's uh, still law. a requirement. Um, but yeah, uh, just, you know. On the other hand, uh, if you can't call the CRA, would anyone ever notice? Now it's just infinite holds as opposed to like five-hour holding? I I uh, am, was supposed to get a call back from Service Canada by today about some issue with my parental leave. Uh, thankfully, I was overpaid rather than underpaid so uh so they're trying to get money back from you but well i called them to report it because they put it in they did they screwed it up um but now i call me back service canada if you want to figure this out one day but maybe finish your strike first and yeah uh like labor issues are so rare for the federal government because they basically have one union to deal with right like there are they had to deal with the railway strike as well because there are a few federally regulated industries and some of those are pretty critical to the functioning of the country. But uh, but most like are, are like, as well. Yeah, because you have what, like railroads, telecommunications, banking, air travel, like airlines. Yeah. So like, yeah, and I think WestJet is also considering a strike of their pilots soon. So... Tough days for the liberals coming up. And I think the other thing to remember here is like the stereotypical public servant is a liberal voter, too. I don't know if that's still true, but it feels very true. I No offense to the public yeah. servants, I know. So we'll see how this all plays out uh, and keep an eye on it. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, the other thing is a follow-up story on, uh, speaking of Trudeau uh, rough waters, is... Uh, the ethics commissioner uh, we need a new one again yeah or more specifically the interim ethics commissioner uh is out of the job or resigned and there needs to be a new interim ethics commissioner and a permanent one uh so we talked about this shortly after uh the appointment of uh martine richard uh who turns out is a family member of dominic leblanc yep major liberal cabinet minister uh, who's minister of intergovernment affairs. Uh, this was something that raised quite a few eyebrows and 
it's not a surprise at all that uh, she ended up having to step down. It's a bitter question of why the appointment was ever made in the first place. Like, the optics of this were so obviously bad, and when it comes to conflicts of interest and ethics, it's not enough to just not formally be in breach of them, but you also need to make sure to not have the appearance of that, and this appointment failed that test. Uh, speaking of the appearance of a conflict of interest, uh, one thing, whoever is appointed to replace uh, Martin Richard will have to consider is whether the $160,000 trip that the Prime Minister took to Jamaica uh, for New Year's was totally above board. I guess this was cleared initially, but it turned out that the trip he took was to the resort owned by uh, Peter Green, who has made significant donations to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation in the past few years, and that that was not specifically known by, well, we don't actually know if the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner was aware of that or not. They won't say either of them. Uh, but apparently sources within uh, the PMO or close to them had expressed concerns about how this would look and were willing to speak to Radio Canada, speaking of the CDC, about that, which I find that part of the story almost the most interesting, that you just have yeah, that... people within the PMO starting to, like, sharpen their knives. Yeah, now that is very interesting because, yeah, this PMO has generally been pretty uh, tight-lipped, and you haven't had a lot of, like, leaks from the PMO for anything that isn't stuff that they want to get out on background. Uh, but in terms of... Quote, we wonder why he goes to places like that. Yeah. It's an amazing thing for the people around you to be saying. Well, you have to remember, like, the first Trudeau scandal involved a vacation uh, to the Audra Khan's island. So, like, this really is kind of coming full, full circle. Oh, also there was the uh, whole, like, Tofino trip during the first uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. He has a bad track record when it comes to picking trips. Vacations and costumes should be out of line for Justin Trudeau going forward. And at least one case combined the two of those in a very bad way. So, yeah, just uh, it's one of those things that's now a pattern. And uh, it's very, very interesting that there's starting to be enough discontent in the PMO that that's actually making its way to media. But yeah, we'll also keep our eye if this uh, vacation scandal blooms into anything larger. Like you say, it's not the first time, and it plays into like the worst parts of his brand as being an out-of-touch elite who doesn't care about things like inflation by going to fancy holiday resorts with all of his like, super-rich friends. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.